Have you ever heard a public prayer in a worship service do double duty? On the one hand, it's a prayer. The person is addressing God in praise or thanksgiving or petition. On the other hand, it's an announcement, such as, Lord, please watch over our brother George, who was admitted to County Hospital Room 304 last night around 11 p.m. with chest pains. Or, thank you, God, for opportunities for fellowship, including the supper coming up this Wednesday at 6 p.m., for which everyone will bring a dish to share. Letters A through M, a main dish, and through Z, a dessert. <laughs> King Solomon's prayer in today's passage is a double-duty prayer, maybe even a triple-duty prayer. A few weeks ago, we learned that Solomon's father, King David, was willing to build a temple in Jerusalem, but God said, no, you're not the one to do it. As it turns out, Solomon is the one. Now he's built the temple, and his prayer of dedication is wrapped around a speech designed to answer the questions, okay, so you built the temple, but does God like it? Will God live in it? In the verses we skip, Solomon says he's built this temple as a place God may dwell forever. Solomon is the king who is famous for wisdom, and so he wisely wonders whether God will indeed dwell on earth. But we don't need to worry. Our first assurance is the puff of cloud, telling us that God has actually moved in. And then God answers more fully in the next chapter, chapter 9. God says, I have consecrated this house that you have built and put my name there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. If Solomon does all that God commands and keeps God's statutes and ordinances, then God will establish his royal throne forever. Now, it might sound as though Solomon thinks he has God in his pocket, but this prayer actually was written centuries later, looking back at what really happened. Solomon's temple, also known as the First Temple, was built in the mid-900s BCE. It stood for over 400 years and was destroyed by the Babylonians in 587 BCE. This prayer in 1 Kings was written after that, for people who had lost their land and holy city and knew that their temple lay in ruins. So besides dedicating the temple and assuring the people that God approves, this prayer serves yet another purpose. It was written to encourage the people under Babylonian rule to remember and return to the God of Israel. The people were forgetting God's promises and laws and even the glory of the temple itself. And subtly, the prayer reminds the people that perhaps their kingdom was conquered and the temple destroyed because Solomon and his successors did not keep God's statutes and ordinances. This moment, the dedication of the temple, was the high point for Solomon. From here, it was a long slide to disaster. Solomon's reign was marked with excess and luxury, he achieved this through economic policies that make him pretty much Israel's equivalent of Pharaoh, including the fact that he built this gold-encrusted temple with forced labor. But once again, 
we see how God can work in spite of and even through human sin and frailty. The temple turned out to be Solomon's greatest legacy. It was central to Israel's faith for centuries, and even the memory of it continued to inspire the people. It represented God's presence with the people of Israel. It drew the people together. Although by the time this passage was written, people understood God didn't actually live there, the temple was said to be God's house. It was at the temple that the people could get right with God through their sacrifices. It was at the temple that the people were instructed by God through teaching. It was at the temple that the people could communicate with God through prayer and enjoy God through celebration and feasting. It was at the temple that the people felt closer to God. The Psalms express again and again the joy and blessing that the people felt as they approached the temple and their conviction that God would be there when they arrived. Psalm 84, for example, How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts! My soul longs, indeed it faints, for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh sing for the joy to the living God. These psalms tell us that the temple functioned as a thin place for the people Israel. A thin place in the Celtic tradition is a physical place where human beings experience God more directly. A place where somehow the distance between God and us feels thinner. Throughout human history, people have sought and created and discovered holy places, thin places. Some, like the temple, become sites for pilgrimage. What makes a place thin? Mark Roberts, who has studied thin places, says it's easier to say what a thin place is not. A thin place is not necessarily a tranquil place, a fun one, or even a beautiful one, although it may be all of those things too. Thin places tend to be disorienting. When we're in them, we're jolted out of old ways of seeing the world. So a thin place isn't simply a cozy hug from God. And if we look at the encounters with God in the Bible, we see this again and again. Jacob wrestling with God, Moses and the burning bush, Elijah waiting for God on the mountainside, and so on. But most importantly, thin places transform us, or perhaps they unmask us. Perhaps in thin places, we become our more essential selves. I suspect many of us can think of a place or two where we've felt closer to God, where we felt not just safe or not just more comfortable, not just aware of the beauty of a place, but in some mysterious way, a more tangible sense of the reality of God's presence. My own list of thin places includes Ghost Ranch near Santa Fe, the Isle of Iona near Woods, Redwoods, the Sea Ranch, especially looking at the Milky Way at night. I took an informal survey on Facebook, and people mentioned places of retreat, silence, and solitude. Teze, Iona, Stony Point, the Grace Cathedral Labyrinth, under an oak tree in an ant's backyard, 
or in nature, atop Mount Tam, a river, in a vegetable garden. In our faith, in the Christian faith, however, we don't actually believe that God is more particularly in one place than another, not in the temple, not in the church, not on a mountaintop. We believe, as Diana read to the children, that God is everywhere all the time. What's more, we believe God isn't just out there behind a barrier, but between us, within us. The kingdom of God is among you, said Jesus. So why isn't the whole world a thin place? Well, my first answer is, maybe it is, or even certainly it is. Maybe we're just too thick to recognize it. As Elizabeth Barrett Browning wrote, Earth's crammed with heaven and every common bush afire with God, but only he who sees takes off his shoes. The rest sit around and pluck blackberries. Maybe thin places are where somehow we do see. Maybe they offer glimpses not of heaven, but of earth as it really is. Maybe they are places where we are able to perceive what is true always and everywhere. Maybe the function of a thin place is to help us become less thick and more attentive to God's presence, which turns out always to be with us. In 1952, as part of the This I Believe series created by Edward R. Murrow, actress Helen Hayes wrote an essay describing how she'd lived most of her life believing she was on her own. If anybody was going to help her, it had to be herself. She worked hard and was successful. Then her daughter Mary was struck with polio and eventually died. At first, Hayes couldn't bear it when people offered support. She writes, while Mary was still sick, I used to go early in the morning to a little church near the hospital to pray. There, the working people came quietly to worship. I had been careless with my religion. I had rather cut God out of my life, and I didn't have the nerve at the time to ask God to make my daughter well. I only asked God to help me understand, to let me come in and reach him. I prayed there every morning, and I kept looking for a, a revelation, but nothing happened. And then I discovered that it had happened, right there in the church. I could recall vividly, one by one, the people I had seen there, the solemn laborers with tired looks, the old women with gnarled hands. Life had knocked them around, but for a brief moment they were being refreshed by an ennobling experience. It seemed as they prayed, their worn faces lighted up, and they became the very vessels of God. Here was my revelation. Suddenly I realized I was one of them. In my need, I gained strength from the knowledge that they too had needs, and I felt an interdependence with them. I experienced a flood of compassion for people. I was learning the meaning of love thy neighbor. Truths as old and simple as this began to light up for me like the faces of the men and women in the little church. 
I must help myself, yes, but I am not such a self-contained unit that I can live aloof unto myself. This was the meaning that had been missing before, the realization that I was a living part of God's world of people. Hay's story reveals both how within place changes us and that while her story happened in a church, it isn't necessarily so much about the place itself. It's an experience, a revelation that might have happened anywhere. So maybe thin place isn't even as useful a metaphor, really, as thin experience or thin moment. And that's what people describe to me on Facebook as well. Moments that had little to do with a particular place, a walk, a retreat, singing in community, hearing people tell serious truths. One woman described discovering she had energy and creativity to deal with a troubled five-year-old, and she knew it could only have come from God. Another described being with people at the time of their death. Another offered this poetic insight. Arguing about the New Testament with a friend, seeing grace in an atheist, knowing I cannot match it, being baffled by God, thinking of an infinite, eternal presence, a moment in which all that was, is, and ever will be forms a single whole, wanting to be connected to this. My own thin moments include when I first held my children, when I saw the aurora borealis from a plane going over the North Pole, listening to Father Stefan from the Orthodox Church across the street singing at our ecumenical Thanksgiving service last November. I know for many of you in our congregation, holy moments, thin place moments, happen during music as well. Each of these moments changed me, opened me, made me feel part of something bigger, more infinite, more loving, more in touch with something holy. Can the church be a thin place? One reason the metaphor is awkward is that the church isn't really a place, the way the temple was a place. The church is a community and a movement. We don't go to church. We are the church. But I guess what I'd say is, we ought to be a thin place. We ought to be intentional about offering opportunities that might lead to thin moments, understanding that we can't guarantee it any more than the temple could, understanding that there is no thin place switch to flip, that what we're talking about here is essentially mysterious and huge and cannot be contained, let alone controlled or predicted. But we can be thoughtful about silence, about retreats, about worship that is more about awe and reverence and less about entertainment, even though that is frankly countercultural right now. We can be thoughtful about doing the business of the church, committees and meetings and such, in a way that reflects our expectation that God is near, here, within and among us. What we can do as well is live into the understanding 
that when we leave this sanctuary, we walk into San Anselmo as a couple hundred portable thin places. Using the thin place metaphor, the church in the world is called to be millions of thin places, millions of opportunities, making it easier for people to experience God. The Apostle Paul said, we are the temple. As daunting as it sounds, that means we may be the place that people go to seek an encounter with God. Mark Roberts writes, or to mix metaphors, we are like holes in the Swiss cheese barrier between the earthly and the divine. The church would be, pardon the bad pun, a holy church. A church of holes through which God's presence could be experienced. So though I'm all in favor of churches providing spaces for people to experience God, I'm even more excited about the idea of Christians living in the world in such a way that people don't even have to go to church or a retreat center to sense the presence of God. What would happen if we began to think of ourselves this way? What might happen if we thought of ourselves as thin places, interacting with colleagues at work, doing chores with our kids, talking with the barista at the coffee shop? What difference might it make if we thought of our life together as a thin place, a place where people might interact in a profound way with the living God? Solomon got one thing right. No sanctuary can contain God. And yet, we celebrate that God is here, here in you, here in me, here where we are called to gather, and here where we are sent out to be signs of God's mysterious and loving presence. May it be so for you and for me. Amen.